You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. Before we start, I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of our patrons who are so important to the continuation of the show. We just updated all of the different patronage levels. So we're, we're keeping the same numbers, but we have different rewards. So make sure you go to wearelibertarians.com and click on Patreon or go to patreon.com slash we are libertarians, and you can see all of those tiers. And we want to thank our $100 a month sponsors, and that is Craig DaCosta, Ed Brehob, Jason Doolittle, Jeff Bennett, Christy Avery, and Matthew Durbin. Thank you to them for being such important partners in the growth of We Are Libertarians. We thank you all so much to everybody who gives, and if you want to help us continue to grow... Oh, sorry, that's wall management in the background. They're uh, wanting to speak to me. So please go subscribe to Patreon so I can keep my job. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for joining us here on We Are Libertarians. It's a very exciting episode. I have two folks on the show that I've never spoken to until 10 minutes ago. One of them is in a foreign country. And uh, we're going to talk environmental issues tonight, uh, something that I don't know a ton about, but we've got a great listener question, which I'll read to you in just a moment. And we're going to answer that person's question about how the free market would take care of the environment. So with that said, we'll be right back with that in just a moment. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said, uh... Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Thank you for joining us here on the program this evening. I am very excited to uh, have the opportunity to talk to Fiona Harrigan and Jacob Puckett tonight. We got a great listener question uh, about uh, the environment and a free market solution to it and what, hap- what do we do when everybody starts polluting. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, other than the Wall Dailies and the great work of Hody Johns and Paul Copeland, we have never really covered environmental issues at all because I don't know what I'm talking about. And so I just assume that you would rather be informed than hear me go, hmm, uh, Greta, what do you guys think? So um, so I brought on, uh, I reached out to our friends at Young Voices, which is a great group that uh, provides access to a lot of young thinkers who are working at think tanks or who are writing, who are podcasting, who are doing a lot of uh, well, thought leaders or future thought leaders. 
And uh, they hooked me up with uh, two people that I'm, I'm happy to introduce now. The first is Fiona Harrigan. Let's go ladies first. Fiona is currently in Argentina on spring break. Um, corona got so bad in her hometown that she fled to Argentina. That's uh, totally incorrect. But Fiona is... Uh, Fiona, tell us a little. Let's start with... Um, and let me say hi to Jacob, too, so he can get on on the conversation. Jacob Puckett <laughs> is in uh, the safe confines of St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, so let's start, but let's start with Fiona. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Fiona. What do you do? Where, where do you go to school? What are you studying? Yeah, so um, currently I go to the University of Arizona, where I'm studying political science, emphasis in international relations. Um, and that's the bulk of what I do with my spare time. I, I write pieces on foreign affairs and international relations. Um, as well as environmental stuff. And um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fascinated by environmentalism because it's this huge issue for, for people my age, for college students and high school students alike. So that's, that's informing my interest these days. Yeah, so where did you develop this interest in it? I lived in Utah for a couple of years, actually. And there are so many discussions about public lands and conservation up there. Um, and it kind of just rubbed off on me by, by proxy. Um, and I've, I've carried it with me since still living in the West. It's, it's always a relevant conversation. Why is that? I, I live in Indiana, and so we don't have an environment here. We just have a lot of uh, humidity in the summertime and a lot of snow in the wintertime, and that's our environment. But in, in the West, there seems to be a lot more conservation conversation and con, uh, like a consciousness towards the environment. Why do you think that is the characteristic of the West? There are these beautiful spaces, and there's this very pronounced, especially in Utah, sense of stewardship and responsibility. There's a, a reverence and a deference, um, and I've, I've noticed that carrying over down to Tucson as well. Even though it's a city, I live right on the border of a national park, mm. and everybody's very conscious and appreciative of that fact, and they want to keep it beautiful. Now, when I hear people are going to school for international relations, I don't really know what that means. Explain that to me. Pretend I do know what it means, but everybody else doesn't. What exactly, <laughs> when you're studying international relations, what are you doing? Um, these days, so you can focus on a region, you can focus on, on the general dynamics of the international order, the world systems. Um, these days, for me, I'm interested in how people trade, how people come to understand and misunderstand each other. Um, why wars occur where they do, refugee crises, things like that. So I'm, I'm very interested in these large movements of people and these large movements of ideas. Um, and, you know, that's, that's political science broadly, but just take it on a broader scale. That's very cool. Very, very glad to have you here. We're thankful that you had the time uh, and interrupted your spring break in such an interesting place to come on the podcast. And we thank you so much for that. Uh, yeah, and happy to be here. Thank you. And uh, also with us is Jacob Puckett. Jacob, uh, you work for the Show Me Institute in St. Louis. Uh, what is the Show Me Institute? So the Show Me Institute is uh, basically a free market type think tank um, specifically for the state of Missouri. So any public policy issue, whether it's education, energy, transportation, etc., just for the state of Missouri is what we focus on. Okay. And then, yeah, and then we're part of um, a broader umbrella of other groups um, through the state policy network. So each state pretty much has its own state-specific think tank that does something like we do, just with whatever issues are most relevant to their own state. 
Yeah, here in Indiana, we have uh, the Sagamore Institute. We have, um, I think, connected to the State Policy Network is the Friedman Foundation. Great institution <laughs> de- uh, dedicated towards uh, educational choice. And yeah, the um, man, what the Indiana Policy Review, which Mike Pence worked for at one point. Uh, so yeah, they're part of the State Policy Network. It's a if you've never gone to their website, I encourage our listeners to go and check that out, and you might find a resource in your state that you didn't know existed. So Jacob, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get involved? How did you get into that line of work? <laughs> Uh, almost by accident. Actually, that's usually the answer. Nobody wakes yeah. up. Nobody's like maybe Fiona because she seems like she's really smart. Like nobody wakes <laughs> up at like six and like you know what, Daddy, I want to be a think tank policy analyst one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, specifically for the the energy and environment side, um, my first day at the Show Me Institute after I I finished my master's in economics at the University of Illinois, my first day. Um, I was asked, like, what, what topics would you like to focus on? And then it was emphasized we could really use someone focusing on energy. And so I was like, okay, great. I'll focus on energy. And um, I, I knew a little bit about it because I had actually worked for a different state policy network group the summer before. Um, so I started doing my research, and I really, really took to it a lot more than uh, I could have expected to. And then during that research, I realized that the environment um, was pretty well connected to energy policy. So I've kind of uh, tied those two into one. Very, very interesting. So you're on a libertarian podcast. We have to check your purity. We can't let this go on until we find <laughs> out if you're real libertarians or you're part of the loser club. Um, so. <laughs> Jacob, first, do you describe yourself as a libertarian? Like, what's your, I mean, you don't have to say your political leanings, but, I mean, I imagine you're kind of libertarian-leaning based on what we're going to talk about. Where do you kind of fall on the spectrum? I would say I'm a libertarian-leaning conservative. Okay. Fiona, what about you? Um, I would say that classical liberal is a better descriptor of, of my ideology than libertarian. Um, I tend to lean liberal on social issues, conservative on economic issues. So definitionally speaking, yes, I'm a libertarian. Okay. So for, for new people listening, I, I've heard this distinction. How would you describe, why would you make a distinction between classical liberal and libertarian? It's interesting. And I think a lot of it has to do with, I don't know, there's a certain association with libertarianism, with republicanism, with Democrats, you know. And for me, it's a way of stepping back from from that sure. political noise and, and from distancing myself from politics as a political science major. Um, yeah, it's just a, a better descriptor for me. I find it interesting that a lot of times policy people that I talk to are they just don't want to wade into like the political aspect. Where I I came more from the politics lane, and I as I do this show and talk to more policy people, it really seems there there's almost an aversion. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because you guys work with people who work at think tanks and and work on a lot of policy. Why do you think that exists with uh, people who work on ideas? Why do you think they just throw out the idea of politics altogether? I think you get dismissed underhand if somebody already knows that they don't like the label you subscribe to. That's that's how I would put the distinction. Jacob? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, even most of the people that I work with... um, our discussions don't really revolve around 
political labels per se, or like Republican versus Democrat, but more focusing, I guess, on the details of what that policy uh, would entail. Okay. Very good. So, Jacob, it doesn't like lend itself to, I guess, catchy slogans in the way the politics. Is. Yeah, it, it politics is more about tribalism, and that's the exact opposite of idealism and ideology. A lot of times, I mean, it's I totally get it, um, Jacob. How did I forget? I neglected to ask you. Like, how did you get into environmental issues? Why? Why is that something that really? Why is energy and environmental issues something that you're interested in? Sure. So summer of 2018, I worked at a think tank in Oregon and my boss there is actually like a 15, 20 year veteran of the environmental movement. Started out very much on the left, came back over towards um, the classical liberal side. And so he taught us a lot about that. Um, I took a environmental economics class during my master's program. So I kind of kept that mental train going and then it's picked back up uh back at the show me institute mm. is it just that's what you read and you just find yourself going i, I i'm a, i love foreign policy so like that's the thing that i'm just mostly like i don't know what it is fiona when you talked about the movements of people and the grand thought like to me that just really i don't know what it is it, it's i think it's my love of history that kind of informs that yeah so all right well so here's the thing Here's uh, what I want to do tonight. So I, I always encourage people to write in at editor at wearelibertarians.com. And as I say almost every show, because I want people to fully understand this, we're here to help people understand the world around them and give context to the news and what people are talking about. And if I don't know about the subject when you write, when you write in like Enos did, then uh, I will go and find people like Fiona and Jacob who have informed opinions to give you good information. Um, and I asked if Enos, and I am so sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, if uh, he would be able to come on the show, but he is in Europe, and it is apparently the middle of the night there, and he just doesn't love liberty enough, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but he does know that we're answering his question, and so he wrote in with the following, and then we'll dig into his answers. So Enos writes, I have been listening to your podcast for a few months now and have found it very entertaining and useful in refining my ideas. Although I innately am, freedom, uh, am a freedom lover and believer in personal responsibility, I only recently got formally into libertarianism. There has been one thing that has been bugging me quite a lot, though. How would climate change and pollution get tackled in a libertarian society? While most current governments are not great at it either, ideas such as a carbon tax actually makes a lot of sense. That could, in fact, encourage people to invest more in clean energies, which are actually more profitable than fossil fuels. I've had direct experiences with unregulated businesses uh, that operate despite their utter lack of care for the health of citizens. What do you think we as libertarians can do to promote sustainability? So I think before we tackle his question fully, we have to define and discuss a couple basic things because I don't think everybody fully agrees. Uh, I came from the right, and uh, t 20 years ago, it was very common to not believe in climate change and say that it was a hoax and Al Gore, um, Fiona. I, I don't know how old you are, Jacob. If Fiona's younger, you may not remember um, – uh, like, are, have you ever watched an inconvenient truth? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I have not. No, I'm 19. It was before my time. Okay. All right. Well, when Inconvenient Truth came out 20 years ago, it was wildly mocked, and and Al Gore was the vice president. For those listening who aren't, aren't sure who that is, he was the vice president to Bill Clinton. Uh, and it was... Environmental issues when I was in college was largely seen as a political tool of the left to introduce socialist ideas. And in a lot of ways, it's still seen that way. If you look at the Green New Deal, it is wildly opposite of everything that I personally believe politically. Uh, and the, the right and people that believe in libertarianism and people who believe in the free market have not done a very good job of articula articulating a counter to any of this other than it's a hoax. And so I think a lot of people are listening going, okay, how would we solve climate change? I don't even believe that the stupid thing is real. Now, as time has gone on and you just like, just go watch a couple of Vice videos where they do embedded journalism up at the polar ice caps, and you go, oh, burning all the palm trees for palm oil that floats up all of the, the black soot onto the polar ice caps, and it's melting them at an alarming rate. I guess I believe it's real now. Um, but let's start with uh, asking the first question, is climate change real? And I'm going to go to Fiona first, Fiona Harrigan. Um. Scientific consensus, at least to me, is pretty clear that it is real. There have been increases in things like carbon emissions that we can just measure against historical counts. And, and we can see that there is this trend that does directly correlate with human activity. Um, and I think it's important to distinguish human activity versus natural activity because there is such a thing as natural global warming and climate change. Um, and that's where a lot of people get hung up. But in terms of human activity, I, I would say that it's pretty undeniable that climate change exists. And Jacob, what about you? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that uh, humanity through its activities definitely has an impact on the environment. Um, when you get into, I guess, the political realm discussing climate change, I think it has a tendency to be overblown a little bit, um, especially when... Um, there's a difference between the satellite temperature readings and the surface temperature readings. And when you start to look at the differences, you realize, oh, it might not be um, warming precisely as fast as the most alarming um, proponents would have, would have you believe. Um, but yeah, it, humanity definitely does have an impact on the environment. Um, we have contributed to some of the warming, and that is something that we should consider. Okay, so... It's sort of like the coronavirus. I'm sitting here going, all right, I've lived through SARS and MERS and avian flu and swine flu and Ebola, and I was going to die every single one of those, and net neutrality was going to pass, and we were all going to die from that. And, and then AOC is telling me I'm going to die in 10 years, 
and Fiona, if you watch Inconvenient Truth, we're all doomed and going to die 10 years, and now it's 15 years past when he said we were going to die. So there's, there seems to be a lot of hysteria around this, and everyone's children are going to be burned in a ball of uh, flaming carbon emissions within the next 20 years. Uh, and so I think people kind of go, all right, I'm not even going to worry about it. So is the hysteria justified? So as you guys read about this stuff, like what what's the level of concern that is appropriate versus the level of concern that really gets clicks from the media? Does that make sense? Am I asking the right question? Mm-hmm. All right, Jacob, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that so usually the, these things operate on like if we double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, how much are we going to warm the planet? And um, the more sensible estimates, in my opinion, are, I mean, it will warm it. it will, the planet will warm, but it won't be to the disastrous levels where, you know, Manhattan will be underwater or uh, the beaches in Miami and the properties will be completely covered by the ocean. So it's, these things happen on a long-term scale, um, which definitely does give humanity time to adapt to them. Uh, but I, I don't think it's as extreme as the, as the alarmists uh, claim that it is. Fiona, do you agree with that assessment? I would agree. Um, I would say that we should be, at least speaking from my generational perspective, I'm a person who will have to deal with these repercussions in my lifetime um, if these prophecies are true. Um, I think we should be alarmed, but not alarmist necessarily. I think that by taking such a doomsday approach to these issues, you shut yourself off to any discussions of trade-offs or compromises. And I think that with an issue that is so global and so all-encompassing, it's more important than, than with most other things to consider trade-offs and compromises as viable options, too. So... Now we've established that it is real, that it is something we need to be concerned about. And a lot of people that are concerned about this issue will say, the only way to get something done is to have the government do it. We need a big government intervention to actually see action take place on climate change. Uh, Let's start with Fiona. How would you argue against that from a free market perspective? From a free market perspective, um, you can look at all sorts of environmental regulations and legislation that have already been instituted by the government. So recycling, for instance, something like 7% of all recyclables are processed correctly as a result of government action. Um, The Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, these sorts of, of bills all have massive repercussions and unintended consequences. It's hard to find perfect answers when it's such a knowledge problem at its core. People don't have all the answers, and by trying to make one party have all the answers, you're just asking for some kind of trouble and misunderstanding. So when you say something like the Clean Air Act has been, has had repercussions that were, I I assume you're assuming negative consequences, like what what are some of the negative consequences from some of these government actions that we've seen? So the Clean the Clean Water Act, I think, is a more interesting example. Um, the Clean Water Act deals directly with point pollution, but not things like agricultural runoff, which contributes massively to water pollution. So in a sense, they don't consider all of the moving parts, these moving parts that more free market approaches maybe would be better at considering. Okay. And 
so what are some examples of free market wins in fighting pollution, for instance, and climate change? There are all sorts of of proposals by so-called free market environmentalists, and there are a lot of really interesting organizations doing work on those fronts. Um, One of the more interesting proposals that that hasn't been nationally instituted um, necessarily is uh, cap and trade, um, which has primarily been applied to emissions, but has great potential for carbon dioxide, which is where we see a lot of these global warming effects coming in. Um, And I think Jacob can speak a little more more pointedly on that front, I suspect. Yeah, so I saw Elon Musk, and I may have been on 60 Minutes, talk about uh, this as they were touring the Tesla factory and talking about batteries and sustainable energy. And this was probably five years at least ago. And he was like, it's just not there because the batteries don't work and you really need to get carbon taxes or cap and trade in place where... Uh, you know, people need to be fined for their carbon emissions. Financial penalties are the only way that people will actually adjust their behavior. Um, is that true, Jacob? What is cap and trade? And do you believe that a carbon tax is the only way forward that we need the government to intervene to really solve climate change? But you guys set me up perfectly for what I was hoping to talk about tonight. Excellent. Um, yeah. For, first point, um, I, I think Fiona is definitely right. Just like you can have market failure when it comes to environmental issues, you can also have government failure when it comes to environmental issues. And specifically with cap and trade and carbon taxes, those are, in my opinion, the forgotten side of environmental regulation per se. It's like when we think of regulation, we mostly think of um, what's called command and control regulation. Like your smokestack can only have this much amount of emissions coming out of it. Your car must have this level of fuel efficiency. But when it comes to, let's, let's just start with cap and trade. If your goal is to reduce a certain amount of, reduce emissions by a certain amount, the government can say, all right, look, we're going to cut emissions by say 50% over the next 20 years. And that's the cap. The trade part comes in to where each company that is emitting these, um, whatever it is, say say it's carbon dioxide, but whatever company is emitting carbon dioxide in large amounts is given a permit, usually for one ton of carbon dioxide emissions. So they have this permit that's basically a right to um, emit one ton of carbon dioxide. And then only the amount of permits that are required to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 50%, whatever the cap is, are circulated among uh, whatever companies are in this market that the government created. And then those companies can, they can trade their permits. They can say um, that if it's cheaper for them to reduce their emissions through say, some new technology rather than holding on to their permit. They can sell those permits um, and just reduce the emissions. So so let me let me just stop you and put it in other words just to be clear. Sure. So it's sort of like a liquor license where liquor license, there's a certain amount of liquor licenses here in this town, and you can buy a liquor license from a bar that's closing down, but you basically buy credits. You buy the permit for this amount of CO2 emissions, and if you need to buy more, you can go into the market and buy more. 
and then that allows you or and so there's you're putting a cap basically on the amount of emissions and you're creating a system of trade around those particular permits is that am i getting that right I think so. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with with the liquor license, but basically the the main government action in this is setting the cap, and then it's up to the companies to decide how to meet um, the amount of emissions under that cap, whether it's trading their permits or um, advancing the technology on their own. So, do you both believe that government should have a role to play in fighting climate change? Well, that's a tough one. I do think that there is a beneficial role for a government to play, but it's it's not as hands-on as, as most other people would agree to. Um, I think at a certain point, climate change and discussions about regulations, they tend to negate human nature and try to overrule human nature, whereas something like cap-and-trade is, is conscious of the fact that we can't get rid of all pollution, of all emissions. And, and most economists on our side of the aisle would say that the optimal amount of pollution is not zero. Um, and I, I think that's important to keep in mind. So insofar as the government can keep that in mind, sure, there's, there's a rule. What about you, Jacob? Yeah, I, I, would, I would tend to agree with that. Um, I think it'd be, it might be a bit extreme to say that there's no rule um, whatsoever, but you can go to the other extreme um, just as easily. And if the goal is to reduce emissions by a certain amount, um, then, yeah, I think the government could play a role in that. Okay. So just at least at, the, at that top end, but you have, to, mm-hmm. you have to set up the system where the government – so I think a lot of people might hear that and say, well, but you allow a little bit of government in. And then all of a sudden – so how, how do you keep – Fiona, as as you mentioned, and and this is to either of you, how do you keep the government regulated in getting involved if it is not a purely if if it is regulated and watched over by the government? How do you check the government and special interests that inevitably try to get control of the government to control the entire playing field? I don't know what the right answer to that is because yeah. with with most realms that the government ends up regulating, there is an overstep at a certain point. Um, with environmentalism, it, I would construe it in international terms. It's this this global commons problem in a sense. I think for individuals strictly to be working on something that is is so global and all encompassing in its effects, um, there there are parts that are just impossible to manage on on that front on such a grand scale um so i I do believe that a government would have a role in in that sense in particular but it is about empowering specifically individuals and organizations and even businesses and companies to better their practices what whatever incentivization actually means at that point so how do you check the government jacob hmm well I don't know if there's one right answer to this, um, but I think we can look at some of the cap and trade programs that have worked um, and seen um, what made them work. And then if they fell apart, what made them fell apart. And there's usually a certain theme that keeps reemerging um, in these matters. Uh, like if we take one cap and trade program that worked very well, uh, the sulfur dioxide acid rain program uh, back in the nineties and then early two thousands, Classic cap-and-trade program set up by Congress 
Um, the EPA was pretty much legislated out of it by Congress. They didn't really have the authority to get their fingers in it. Um, unfortunately, when they did, starting around 2005, um, they introduced all sorts of rule changes that you know, they weren't accountable to anyone to change, per se, whereas uh, the program was set up by Congress, so you had the built-in uh, gridlock in the congressional system that kind of acted as a check on its own to any drastic changes that were made to the program. Um, but when the EPA got involved, they effectively crashed the program two years later after it had been running for about 15 years. Right. And so hopefully if we have enough examples of government failure, then people will start to get the memo that, uh, <laughs> and, and I really do feel, and, and this is what I try to say to people like, just point out that we can't have a libertarian society or free market solutions because X might happen. You know, I was talking about Medicare for all and uh, is it Martin Schenkel, the drug guy who bought the company and spiked the prices. I'm like, you realize that happened in your utopia, right? Like that happened under a highly regulated and he, he's so like a bad actor is so uncommon still that we make Netflix documentaries about the guy. So I think sometimes we have to point out like, the 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 bad actions are still going to happen there will always be bad actors with some of this stuff so so that's interesting jacob so cap and trade systems are already being employed and and i think maybe i'm looking at this from a very simplistic view sort of the aoc view of we're going to have one bill that fixes everything and we're going to have one giant program that is going to completely save the environment but i think in hearing what you two are saying it's more industries and individuals in those industries talk amongst themselves set up some parameters within and set some of those almost like a like the rules of a guild or or the rules of a union or the rules of an industry um i don't know you know underwriters laboratory for instance for electronics is always brought up so it's more the way that you two or the way that i hear you talking is that it's much less global grand scale and much more be a leader in your own industry to help lead your industry towards a more green solution. And that I in Indiana don't need to sit here and how to, how to fix the world and save the planet. Let individuals do it and innovate within their own industries. Fiona, you're shaking your head. So, so am I thinking about it too simplistically that it needs to be one giant plan to save us all? No, I was nodding, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think it is a perfect example of a knowledge problem. It, again, there are so many moving parts within environmentalism and climate change and conservation and, and pollution. These are all inherently different terms with inherently different challenges um, and solutions. Um, by that virtue, it's important to be able to apply different solutions and remain open to solutions that we might not have even considered. Um, there is no one size fits all, and there are, as far as I can see, there are no perfect solutions. There are only better and worse solutions to these problems. Right. Okay. So, Jacob, I'm being too simplistic, trying to think of my own libertarian Green New Deal. It, <laughs> the cap and trade systems that are already going on in industries, there that is the way forward. Letting industries sort of self-regulate. I think Fiona hit the nail on the head. Like it's, it's a knowledge problem when you try to introduce um, one plan or one agency trying to regulate the entirety of whatever it is they're trying to regulate. Whereas 
this can work for either cap and trade or carbon taxes. If you make it a technology neutral goal to reduce, say, emissions by a certain amount and then let the companies or the industries figure out how to reduce it on their own, if you're going to find the most cost effective ways because they have that profit incentive in their mind, um, they're not going to, I mean, they, they know what the rules are as long as the rules are enforced and they're standard throughout the whole duration of the period. Um, they're going to find more cost-effective ways to do it than some person sitting a couple hundred miles away who's never been to that power plant or that automaker um, can find on their own. And just to go off of that point, I think young people, people my age of my generation are becoming more and more amenable to and supportive of green businesses and green technology. It's really a priority. And in a sense, they vote with their pocketbooks and they express that preference through price signal. About 10 years ago, Johnson & Johnson, I believe it was Johnson & Johnson, was airing ads showing how they had made their uh, their plants carbon neutral, basically. They were spending marketing dollars to tell me, sitting in my living room watching Biggest Loser or whatever it was at the time, that they had gone carbon neutral because they recognized there was a significant and growing industry like uh, there, there. The, if the idea of walking into a Walmart in two thousand and two, and w- seeing organic food and and having green choices in, in your cleaning products, and uh, that just didn't exist. Like there have been whole new uh, markets that have been created, and the market has totally responded to meet the needs of people that that. Frankly, I'm not as economically, I'm not eco-friendly, unfortunately. And so people like Fiona, I assume, push the companies to do stuff so that I go, eh, all right, I'll spend a little more for some organic eggs, or yeah, I'll buy that cleaner that is better for the environment. So I think that that in and of itself is a way that the free market is responding to environmental needs and increasing the ability for uh, us, for people like me to make better choices, because I just frankly wouldn't go. Like I had a friend who like went to the donut shop and took a reusable container to not take the cardboard, and I'm like, oh, I guess I never would have thought of that, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, the market is already responding in a lot of ways. And so, what are some? Because you wrote a piece, Fiona, that I'll put in the show notes. Environmentalism and economic growth go hand in hand. And so, talk about that a little bit first, Fiona, and then Jacob, like environmentalism doesn't mean big government solutions and higher taxes. It can mean economic growth. Yeah, absolutely. It can mean the the choices you make on a personal basis. Um, Looking at the trend of how environmentalism has been perceived over time, it's transformed from this middle importance issue to the top priority for people my age, for, for Gen Z and millennials. At that point, even if your government isn't taking across the board decisive action in in support of environmentalism, you can still make plenty of choices. You can carry a reusable water bottle. You can buy Patagonia clothing. You can bike instead of driving. And, And I see people in my orbit doing all of those things themselves. And once enough people do that, it it does send a very clear signal to companies and businesses that this is the profitable way to operate, that this is what people truly value now. Jacob. Yeah, I, I think that environmental, being environmentally conscious and growing your economy can go hand in hand. 
Um, there, there's a concept in economics called um, the Kuznets curve. Basically, it looks like a bell shape, uh, the bell curve shape. And the idea is that as countries um, get more economically developed, their environmental impact will go up for a certain point, and then it reaches a turning point and it starts to come back down. Um, and we can we can see this happening in a lot of places throughout the world. Uh, for instance, a lot of first world countries, um, their emissions have pretty much been flat for a while, and they're projected to be flat going forward. Whereas the, most of the increased emissions um, are coming from the more developing world, and so probably once they start nearing first world status, um, their their citizens will get more environmentally conscious because um, they have that luxury at that point. And then you'll start to see more environmentally friendly solutions um, happen as people start to care about that more. Okay. And so let's switch it up a little bit because nuclear power seems to be mentioned a lot. Uh, it's, I remember watching one. I, I really do like the HBO Vice show. I know that most libertarians are <laughs> calling me king of the loser club for liking Vice. Uh, videos but i think that they do talk to a lot of interesting people and they talk to this in one episode the one of the founders went out and talked to this kid in i think nevada who had taken nuclear waste and had turned it into an individual nuclear reactor for every home that was completely safe he had figured out the problem of nuclear waste and had turned it into a a home battery basically I was, it was incredibly brilliant, and I, I just always look at that kind of stuff and go, well, that's the free market at work, supported by universities. Um, but nuclear seems to get a bad rap in the environmental community. Obviously, uh, things like Fukushima. You know, Chernobyl, in, in and of itself, was a bureaucratic failure. Like, I know the HBO Chernobyl show was not historically accurate, but it was historically accurate enough to show exactly the problem that you see with frankly, things like the, the growth of the coronavirus in, in China with authoritarian governments. But I think Fukushima set back the conversation on nuclear a little bit. When you guys are, are studying up on this stuff, what are your own opinions on nuclear? What is sort of the, the talk of nuclear in 2020 or 2020, I guess? Jacob? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and take it. I think if you're looking to reduce the emissions impact from your power sources, the nuclear power is easily the best answer that you can be looking for. Um, when you take into consideration uh, deaths from accidents and things like that, uh, emissions in the air, when you compare the, the main power sources throughout all of history, nuclear power has the lowest death count by far. There are several power, there are several countries that run um, with large amounts, possibly even majorities of nuclear power powering their electricity. France, it's about 70%. Sweden, it's, I think, around 40%. Um, there are a couple other European countries that are, are in the same, same type of situation. So it is possible um, to scale up nuclear power to the extent that it can be one of your main sources. And as a result, those countries have much cleaner electricity than even, say, Germany, which is poster child for the renewable energy movement, it's it's about a, France has about one third of the carbon dioxide emissions per person as Germany, and their electricity is half the price. Yeah. So 
So it's, it's definitely an option that I think, unfortunately, is written off uh, all too soon. Yeah, and and to branch off of your point on Germany, um, they're they're trying very actively to completely swear off of nuclear power and to shut down the plants that they've they've operated over the years. Um, nuclear, it's again, it's there have been a couple incidents throughout history that that become these these caricatures and these these symbols of what nuclear could be, but in reality, it's a it's a whole lot more efficient than things like solar energy and and wind power. Those things are, are highly dependent on weather, and they can't be active all the time. Um, whereas nuclear is is much much more productive. So what what about uh, Jacob? Did you have something you want to add? No, I was just agreeing. Like nuclear runs about ninety percent of the time. Wind and solar usually less than a third. And that's what I wanted to ask you about because again, I'll put this in the show notes. Um, you wrote an article, Jacob. A renewable energy too much of a good thing, and I was surprised at how. How much more expensive and inefficient some of these renewable sources were. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Well, let's say you have one megawatt of natural gas power and you want to replace it with, let's say nuclear power. I'm talking about that. One megawatt of nuclear power, you want to replace it with wind power and solar power. Um, nuclear power will run usually upwards of 90% of the time. So you're going to get pretty close to one megawatt of power from each megawatt of capacity that you've built for nuclear. For wind and solar, it's completely the opposite. It's less than a third. So you would have to build three times as much capacity just to get the same amount of electricity that you're generating. And then you've got to take into consideration uh, the fact that those sites for the best power from the wind and the sun, usually you have to build a lot of transmission lines because they're very far away from where people live. So the bills for that add up. Um, And then like Fiona was saying, they're not running all the time. So you're not going to rely on power from the sun at nine o'clock to watch the Super Bowl. You're going to have to get it from somewhere else. And there there just simply isn't enough of it around all the time. And when you try to go too far with that, uh, beyond what's reasonable, then the prices really start to stack up. For instance, Germany has the highest electricity prices in Europe. And they're also probably the most committed to developing wind and solar power. Um, You can see it in California. You can see it in other countries that have these same policies. And when you start to pull back the curtain and look at what all goes into the prices, it's really not that surprising. Fiona, anything you'd like to add to that? No, that that was incredibly comprehensive. Um, I think that things like wind and solar... Again, a lot of it has to do with the image. Nuclear is perceived as this dirty thing, and, and wind and solar are attractive. They're, they're almost cartoonish representations of what environmentalism is, um, and they've been so fully embraced for those reasons. But it's, it's important that we look critically and, and see where our money should be going, where it would be most efficiently spent. So when we talk about <clears> – excuse me. Um, I just got back from China. Uh, so when we talk about um, – Energy and energy policy, and maybe we'll throw this to Jacob because this seems like he's salivating as I start to ask this question. <laughs> Fiona and I can see it. Uh, so when we talk about how to power America and power countries around the world and bring on, you know, bring in countries like China and India and Indonesia and the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, 
and power their needs because realistically china if you didn't see you should look this up if you didn't see the incredible photos out of china after the coronavirus shutdown where they're completely shut down and the co2 emissions over china have completely disappeared in the last two months and the heat map is just completely different it's fascinating but china is uh these brick countries are tremendous um I wouldn't say polluters. I guess you could say polluters, but they have a lot of energy needs. And so as we start to look at a world energy policy and an American energy strategy, what are, how do we do it? If, if, if solar and wind and these things are not necessarily the right way to go, what are you guys, what are you both choosing to help power the country with? Jacob, we'll start with you. I think the most obvious source that's presented itself in the last 10 years or so has been natural gas. Uh, the U.S. has unbelievable amounts of natural gas. Uh, thanks to fracking, we can get at uh, very low prices. So that's, that's now our main source of electricity. Some vehicles are starting to run on compressed natural gas. Um, I think it's a good idea also, though, not to try to have one energy source uh, as like, as your all encompassing be all end all of where you get your electricity. Um, you, that'll leave you really vulnerable to, to price shocks or if you depend on other countries, um, harvesting, mining for coal or uranium, then you're really dependent on everything that goes into not only your political relations with them, but their internal stability um, you know, a lot of it depends on the, the needs of the country and what types of resources they have at their, their own disposal. Um, China, for instance, has a lot of rivers, so they can make massive use of hydropower, whereas for a lot of the U.S., we just simply can't. That's really restricted to a couple areas. So that, that'll depend um, by region, by country, um, and at this point, I think I've forgotten how I started the answer to this question. Oh, it, a comprehensive <laughs> energy policy for America that supports climate change in a positive way. Mm-hmm. If, if Fiona has anything to add, feel free to jump in, too. Um, I don't want to take over the conversation here. You're good. <laughs> no worries. Much more knowledgeable than I am on this front. Um, I, I think really the best thing we can do is to remain open and to suspending our notions of, of what these energy sources actually represent, looking at them objectively and diversifying wherever we can. Again, energy independence is a really, really good thing to be aiming for and likely something that we could accomplish if we come to the right solutions. Um, but that's only going to happen if we're, we're willing to be critical about these things. Yeah. So that leads me to the gas prices. I mean, I, when I was in high school, Fiona, you could fill up a tank of gas back in my day. Uh, you could fill up. I could fill up my '95 Ford Mustang for 15 bucks for a full tank of 10 gallons of gas. It was amazing. And I never, as I drove through Northern Indiana, I saw two dollars and two cents. And I never in my life thought that I would ever see two dollar gas again. It's it's below two dollars in some places. Not in Indiana because. Our governor, the Republican, uh, had the biggest tax hike in uh, Indiana history on gas taxes um, by 30 cents. But uh, we have amazingly low gas prices as we record this show. Why? How did that happen? Jacob, you can take this one. (laughs) Okay, one word. (laughs) Fracking. 
Okay. Isn't fracking bad though? Doesn't that I saw like that, you know, isn't that like those documentaries and it lights your water on fire? I thought fracking was horrible. <laughs> well, there's a lot of misinformation uh, out there surrounding fracking. Just to pick one example, the, the, the part, and I, I think the movie is Gashlin where the guy turns on his faucet mm-hmm. and light his water on fire. So there was a study done specifically on his, on his house and the methane that was in the, his water system uh, was natural. So even if fracking was never invented, that still would have happened to his uh, his water supply. <laughs> of course. <laughs> These documentaries, you can't trust any of them. You only yeah, listen it, to podcasts. It's, it's, that's all you can do. Political, yeah, it's a political hammer uh, that's then swung around and you try to hit everyone and everything with it. Um, but there, there have been a lot of studies done about the environmental impact of fracking. Um, no systematic evidence has been found that it contaminates groundwater supplies. Um, it's significantly reduced uh, the emissions from power plants or heating systems that converted from coal to natural gas. Um, the only real concern I can think of with it right now that's, that I'm still not sure about is whether or not it can cause minor earthquakes. Um, I'll, I still have to research more about that. But otherwise, fracking has doubled America's oil production since 2005. Natural gas has gone up by 70% in production. We've gone from being very reliant on other countries for oil imports to now being an oil exporter. Um, We're the largest producer combined of oil and natural gas in the world. And yeah, without fracking, none of that would have been possible. And maybe I should have started with what is fracking? What are they? What what is fracking? Oh yeah, it's 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 a shorthand for hydraulic fracturing. So imagine taking a drill bit and going down, turning it ninety degrees, going the other way. Okay. Um, horizontal drilling, basically. And then you you crack open the plates of the earth a little bit. You shoot these small, tiny particles. I think of sand into there. And that will allow um, the oil and the natural gas that's been compressed in those rocks to then be collected uh, into whatever pipe that you drew. Fascinating. Okay. All right. No well, idea how they did it. But, uh, I, I, th- listen, that's, uh, as Fiona said, it's a knowledge problem. All I can do is ask <laughs> questions of smart people. I can't, I can't, all I can do is figure out how to get people to listen to this stupid thing. That's the good thing I'm good at. And thank, <laughs> thankfully you guys are good at reading. Um, <laughs> so Fiona, I, I, I want to ask because I want to go back to you know personal habits, um, and you may be the best person to start with. It, it just does like I think because we have that idea that it needs to be this green new deal and this big thing that my recycling or my choosing certain products that are more green friendly that that is like a tiny little drop in the bucket and it does nothing. Like, is that, is that the case? Like how much do our personal habits on an individual basis actually add up to total change? It can certainly be kind of defeating to look at the small steps that you make and and know that halfway around the world, there are still these massive producers and emitters of carbon being fully active and, and that they don't have to amend their ways in a sense. For me personally, um, you know, something as simple as taking public transportation or only getting secondhand clothing, it's, it's a very minute thing. It's this tiny, small scale effort. But at the same time, 
once you see other people around you doing those things, you feel like there's this broader movement, that there is this broader support for the issues that you, you truly are passionate about. I think there's a lot of value in that, even if it's not this, this grand across the board effect. I think there's a lot of value in, in the social movement and the power that that could eventually have. It's almost like somebody should write a book about the totality of human action and what that adds up to. That'd be really smart. Somebody write that down. Um, Fiona, you mentioned clothing and secondhand clothing. What's that about? What, what, if I go to yeah. Kohl's and buy some clothing, what am I doing wrong to the earth? Yeah, clothing waste is, is massive. It's this, this huge source of landfill waste. Um, and it's, it's really staggering how many articles of clothing just get discarded. Um, so there are a lot of websites that have capitalized on this, um, fittingly enough, and they, they buy back clothing from people and, and sell it for pretty low prices. Um, so ultimately whatever's in circulation remains in circulation and things just don't get added to landfills. I would put my, my clothing at about 75% secondhand now. Excellent. Okay. So what are some other things that people can do that, they may have not have thought of that, you know, as you as you're into this topic, like inform somebody like me, like, hey, try a couple of these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the trendy examples right now is to limit your meat consumption. And a lot of restaurants have capitalized on this by introducing impossible burgers and veggie burgers generally. Um, that helps cut down on a lot of agricultural emissions. And, and those are they're, they're a major source of, of carbon dioxide right now. So it's, it's a really helpful way of going about things. Um, and all the classic examples, you know, don't use plastic water bottles. Try and limit your, your usage of, of cars. Turn off the lights when you leave the room. Um, I think that a lot of these classic things have, have become classic for a reason, and we'd be wise to keep them up. Anybody that knows me, that sees me, sees me with one of these Nalgene blue bottles, and I've had these for about a decade, and there's videos of me on C-SPAN at Libertarian Party conventions with my trusty blue bottles, and it's it's become a joke at church. When I walked in last night, they were like, there he is, he's double-fisted in the 32-ounce <laughs> Nalgene. But, you know, I did it because I was buying you know, every day a gallon of water because I drink a gallon of water a day. And uh, I switched to Brita Filters and Nalgene. And you know what? Not only is it good for the earth, I've probably saved a tremendous amount of water bottles. I've saved myself a ton of money, too. So uh, I think that a lot of times we think, oh, green is going to be more expensive. It is not. Um, So... Jacob, kind of in that same vein, Sam on YouTube asked, if individuals take charge of producing energy for personal needs, a.k.a. powering their home, charging their car, through wind and solar, how viable do less efficient sources become on a national scale? So if, we, if we're not, as a city, going to be able to pull it off, how efficient can we do it if we start taking our, our own individual action and powering our homes on our own? It's great to know that people are uh, watching this live. Yes, uh, someone just said she was doing well till she attacked meat. So, Fiona, I'm going to have to come up with some less tasty examples of green (laughs) movements. Uh, So, Jacob, uh, powering your own home. So there are a couple ways that people have started to take this into their own hands. One is putting solar panels on top of their roof and rooftop solar. And then another one is called community solar, which basically is your neighborhood puts up uh, an array of solar panels and then that electricity just goes to 
your neighborhood or whatever community that you're in. It's become pretty popular, uh, I think, in large part due to a lot of the state tax credits that are uh, available for people to put these on their roofs. I mean, ultimately, they're going to run into the same problem of you can only use that electricity at certain times of the, certain times of the day, and storing it's very expensive. Um, it also will depend your success in doing this on what state you live because different states have very different policies, not only regarding this matter specifically, um, but just regarding the way their electricity market is run, whether it's still a monopoly structure or there's more competition. And one of the losers in this is utilities, because then a lot of times they're forced to buy back um, that power, the excess power that's being produced at a house that's not going to use all of it necessarily in the middle of the day and they're starting to lose money on that. So you're probably going to see um, a lobbying fight between utility companies and rooftop solar interest groups as to the way these laws are going to be structured. Great. Um, we're almost out of time. So I, I have a couple more questions that I want to get in. So uh, I would be remiss if we didn't enter the land of Anarchotopia and just go to a purely free libertarian society, because I know this is a question that gets asked a lot, and it's kind of fundamental in what Enos is asking us. Uh, how do you deal with polluters in a purely libertarian society where there is no government? I think we have the idea, rightly or wrongly, that the government is what cleaned up the rivers. The three rivers in, Phil in uh, Pittsburgh lit on fire in the 70s, and Jimmy Carter came in and founded the EPA, and that is what cleaned up America. Uh, and so in a world where we don't have an agency cleaning up the rivers and enacting the Clean Air Act, how would we deal with people who are polluting, and how do we get how, – how do we, how do we police the bad actors, I guess is the way to put it, in a free market? Jacob? Oh, yeah, I'll throw something out there. So there's been some research done on this. Um, the circumstances of which, or the, the under what circumstances can individual communities police themselves better than um, a regulatory agency regarding pollution and waste? Generally, what it comes down to is you have a small group of people that are relatively homogenous. They know each other. They trust each other and they know what each other are up to. Um, so when you have situations like that, you can have the community itself be the best enforcement mechanism for limiting pollution and waste and avoiding the whole tragedy of the common scenario. Now, when it gets to like a much larger, larger scale, countywide, statewide, nationwide, um, I, I've just got to say, I'm not familiar with what research has been done on this topic. Okay. Fiona, do you yeah. want to tackle it at all? I would agree that that's where it gets complicated. It's like prosecuting any, because it, it would take on the form of some kind of transgression, some kind of crime, if we're treating it as a violation of a law or policy. Um, and just as prosecuting any big offense in a bigger society, a more 
diverse society becomes difficult, I think it would be similarly difficult. It's hard to say in, in a structure of that nature what the solution would be. Um, but in terms of a small community, it, it seems like there is a certain amount of self-regulation that is implied. Absolutely. I, I typically don't think most people want to be bad actors. I think a lot of it is people don't realize, oh, thalidomide is probably something we shouldn't give to pregnant mothers. We're really sorry that happened. And then and that's where insurance kicks in. And mm-hmm. sorry, we messed up and the insurance helps pay for it usually. Uh, so but at the end here of every episode, we like to give our co-host time to self-promote but also to talk about anything that they may have missed or to clarify anything. So I want to give you some time as you were maybe thinking about this show. You're like, I really want to say this thing, and we didn't get to it. I didn't talk about it. Or you just want to just, you know, or, or, and or you just want to say, hey, here's my work. Go follow me here. Feel free. So ladies first, let's go to Fiona. Is there anything that you feel that people need to hear now that you're talking to the people or that you may have missed? I think it's it's a bit of a controversial take, but Greta Thunberg has some valid points, valid arguments. I think she starts in reasonable enough places, in, in places that we should all come to understand. The solutions, I think, are where we should be a little more critical and maybe not quite as, as doomsday as she happens to be. But at the same time, I think voices like hers are really important and really representative of how young people feel about these issues. I love memes as next as much as the next guy, but I, I really do feel that when libertarians go off the deep end on somebody like Greta or AOC or Trump, uh, I, I feel like we hurt our cause because people like yourself go, that seems kind of cruel and unfair. Um, I, I think the I think where the breakdown is, and here's what I would say, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong because you've clearly followed her a lot closer than I have. It's like when we're giving her the Nobel Peace Prize because she stood up and, and said something that is generally a widely held opinion, but she's a kid, and so everybody's impressed with her. Like That's where it's sort of like, I think a lot of people go, okay, really? You're just trying to indoctrinate. You're trying to force this down my throat, and I'm tired of having things forced down my throat. Is that an unfair assessment of her? I wouldn't say so. I, I think it's a little bit drastic to view her as, as this saint, this this you know, bringer of, of salvation in, in terms of environmentalism. At the same time, though, she's a kid who's clearly thought about these things, worried about these things. Um, and again, that, that really is representative of how young people feel and the sense of urgency that they're operating on. Um, I think for something as complicated as conservation and climate change, it's important to listen to every voice in the mix and to give weight to those opinions and to be open to things that maybe you aren't so comfortable hearing which is what she's done and which is why she's become so controversial and, and popular. Okay. Jacob, anything that you would like to say or any self-promotion? Um, nothing as, uh, nothing super controversial, I would say other than you're not going to attack meat now. Come on. Fiona's bringing the heat, man. She's, she's, she's about to get Twitter DMS. Come on, Jacob, go. Controversy is cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, max out your meats and single-use plastic. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, it's important to keep in mind government can have a role in protecting the environment. It's just important to consider what that role is and what type, what type of parameters we should keep around the government the same way we're so quick to keep parameters 
around free market solutions. See, which- Jake, Jacob, way more controversial, Fiona. Now it's your turn <laughs> to really do this. He's he's saying the government has a role. The anarchists in our audience are going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta step it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go after bacon next, Jacob. Come on. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm more, so, more so, of a sausage. I, I, I'm joking, and I'm stepping on you. So please, please continue. Like, what, what are you, what are you, uh, like, when you say that? I think a lot of libertarians, and the, going back to the cap and trade thing, they go, mm-hmm. "Yeah, the whole point of this podcast is to not have any government." Which, partially, yes, but we're also here to have conversations about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, why do you say that? Why do you feel that way? Mm-hmm. Well, when I was in the libertarian movement a few years ago, um, I, I always thought that I, I was quick to point out when people say like, oh, you're a libertarian, you're an anarchist, you want Somali. It's like, no, I'm, I'm not saying that there should be no government. I'm saying the role of government should be narrow and defined to things such as defining and enforcing property rights, for instance, which can have um, a very big impact in environmental policies like cap and trade. Um, and when it comes to, I guess, keeping a check on what power the government has, it's very important to do that, especially with uh, programs like cap and trade. Mm. Okay. Where can people follow the both of you if you want people following you? listen treat our guests with respect if you enjoy this program please thank them for coming on the we are libertarians audience is polite and respectful and maintain that and fiona especially will tell me if that's not the case and i will personally dm you and yell at you so if you'd like if you'd like to have people follow your work please tell them where they can do that well, if you're, you're justified in, in criticizing my, my meat proclamation, that's fine. <laughs> it's um, okay. It's, we're just teasing. I'm, absolutely. I'm the only Fiona Harrigan who writes about these sorts of things, so <laughs> feel free to look me up on Twitter or just Google me and all my, my articles about the world and, and the environment will pop up. Jacob, did you say pork sausage over bacon? Yes. All right, Jacob, you don't get to self-promote. <laughs> now go ahead where can people follow uh, your work yeah so I've, I've got some articles up uh, through the place that I work the show me institute it's showmeinstitute.org and then I've got some articles up on real clear energy I think I'm the only Jacob who spells his name with a K that writes for that site so if you if you, you might even be able just to get away with uh, searching my first name on it I like to think that I'm on a first name basis with the world, with the likes of LeBron and Tiger. <laughs> but uh, I'll keep working at it. All right, and I'll put your Twitter and your bios in the show notes so you can go and click that link and just follow them directly. Thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate the conversation. I hope that uh, if you have anything like this that you'd like to discuss in the future, please feel free to reach out. Uh, people have enjoyed this based on the comments and really appreciate both of your time. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much for listening to We Are Libertarians, and we will talk to you soon. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network, and you can find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Shows like We Are Libertarians with Chris Spangle, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Now Hear This with Chris Spangle, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, and our training podcast, Upward Libertarian Activism. All of these shows are supported by our patrons. If you'd like to become a Patreon member, visit wearelibertarians.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to this show. 